Welcome to The Spin Cycle. I'm Maggie Sarachek. And I'm Abby Greenberg. And together we are the Anxiety Sisters. Anxiety Sisters, and welcome to our show. Today, we have two guests with us, both of whom we have met on the mental health conference circuit and both of whom we admire so much. Lauren McKinney is a silent sufferer turned adamant advocate of dermatillomania, also known as excoriation or skin picking disorder. She turned her anguish over the misunderstood mental illness that controlled 27 years of her life into tangible answers founding the nonprofit Picking Me Foundation in 2016. As Picking Me CEO, Lauren stands for skin picking community, awareness, support, and advocacy. And also with us is Ellen Krupe. She is the director of awareness at Habit Aware and a recovering sufferer of trichotillomania, which is also known as hair pulling. Ellen is dedicated to reducing the stigma around mental health and body-focused repetitive behaviors, such as trichotillomania, dermatillomania, which is skin picking, and nail biting. Both of these ladies are tireless mental health advocates, and they both are just balls of energy. We've seen them at conferences and they are dedicated to educating the public about BFRBs and providing support for those who suffer from these disorders. They're warm, they're caring, and they are really dedicated. They spend most of their time helping BRFB sisters and brothers. So please help us welcome them to the show. Oh my gosh, what a warm welcome. Thank you so, so much for that. Oh, well, you deserve it. You guys are both really amazing and we admire you so much. Um, so let's start with this. Um, Abby used the term body focused repetitive behaviors. Um, can one of you explain what those are? What does that term mean? This is Ellen and I'd be okay. delighted to, to share what they are. So body focused repetitive behaviors. It's the general term for a group of related disorders that includes hair pulling, skin picking and nail biting. And these behaviors are not habits and they're not tics. They're rather, they really are a complex disorder that causes people to repeatedly touch their hair and their body in ways that result in physical and emotional damage. And it's the most common disorder that you'll never hear about. One in 20 people have uh, body-focused repetitive behavior and which, which we'll call BFRBs. That's the initials for it. It's really a mouthful. One in 20, wow. Yeah, more people have a, have a BFRB than have bipolar disorder, which everybody knows. People know what bipolar disorder is, but they don't know what a BFRB is. How do you know if you have a BFRB? Some people just like bite their nails or... I'd say um, maybe based on the level of severity that... Um, uh, the BFRB is happening. For instance, with my skin picking, um, it was impeding my everyday life. Uh, and when it shows up like that, um, it definitely falls under dermatillomania or excoriation disorder diagnosis. But I think uh, that's part of the struggle with understanding these disorders is that a lot of people don't report because they're unaware that 
even they can get some help for even just dealing with it slightly or on a, on a low level. But um, that's interesting that you bring that up though. Yeah, and that's a good point what Lauren talked about is when it impedes what you're doing where you don't want to go outside because maybe you have a bald spot or because you have um, some something going on with your skin is when it's diagnosable. But there's also an emotional component too. So in other words, everybody will pick, everybody will bite their nail a little bit or cuticle or pull out a piece of hair. Maybe they see a gray hair, so they pull it out. That doesn't mean that they have trichotillomania. Uh, what when you are diagnosable, it's because it's something that you're doing to your body and you don't want to do it anymore. And no matter how hard you try to stop, you're unable to stop. Your hands have a mind of their own and it's impeding your life. And it could be a physical thing where it's impeding your life because you have scars or you have bald spots and you don't want to walk outside, or it could be impeding your life like it was for me. There was no physical damage. You couldn't see the holes or the bald spots, but I was embarrassed by the activity that I did. Hmm. Are they considered anxiety disorders? Yeah. So, well, as of right now, it falls um, under the DSM-5 under OCD and related disorders. However, even though it falls under that, like Lauren said, it really is a, it's more of a self-soothing behavior. So people will have hair pulling, skin picking, they'll have a BFRB. They're, they might also have a, com, um, a comorbidity where they have an anxiety disorder and they all, or they have depression but you don't have to. If the behavior itself is really something that is self-soothing, which you might do because you're anxious, but you could also do the behavior not because you might be anxious, but you also might be bored. You might be understimulated. You might be concentrating. One of the things I learned about myself is I tend to tend to pull when I'm anxious, but I also tend to pull when I'm concentrating or when I'm just in the car, bored, driving in traffic. So just because you have a BFRB doesn't mean, oh my gosh, I have anxiety. Oh, that's a great answer. Thank you. That made it very clear. We were just wondering if you would tell us a little bit about, is it something more women have than men? And what age is the usual onset of these kinds of disorders? About 75% who report are females, but I do think that there are a lot more men struggling with BFRBs that it, that it's just a little underreported at the moment. The research and the studies show that it typically presents in pre-adolescence, right before puberty. It's usually more girls than boys. Um, and again, it's probably underreported. But it's not unusual that these behaviors could start when you're older, when you're in your when you're in your twenties or in your thirties. But usually it's pre-adolescence. And it can also start as young as ages four and five. Wow. And for some people, it's their eyelashes, eyebrows, picking that, not not the hair on their head or... Yeah, that's also a great question. So on the trichotillomania front, which I'll, I'll address because that's what I have, it's when you're pulling hair in, on, on your body. And it's typically scalp hair, but it doesn't have to be the scalp hair. It can also be the eyelashes and it can also be the eyebrows. We call ourselves tricksters. For me, my I'm a scalp puller. I don't uh, choose to do my eyelashes or eyebrows. And I'll tell you, I'm frightened. I'm afraid that if I pulled one eyelash, I would be hooked. So I stay away from them. 
but you will find that some people, some tricksters will pull uh, both their eyelashes, eyebrows, and head hair rather. And some people even pull their pubic hair. Mm. That's another mm. sight that no one wants to talk about. That mm-hmm. is also an area where people pull. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Lauren, do you want to talk about the skin picking? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And to add with that, um, skin picking, uh, I'd say I've seen and know it recurs um, all over the body. A lot of times from perceived imperfections or uh, areas that stick out that seem foreign or unfamiliar, those are oftentimes uh, super triggering. Um, So what I've found is breaking down picking, not necessarily by where it's happening on the body, but by how the picking behavior is happening. For instance, using focused picking versus scanning picking has helped me create different strategies to help me manage my personal picking. So if I'm doing something scanning picking, my fingers are wandering my body. They might be on my arms, on my chest. I might be driving and that other hand is wandering. And I look down and all of a sudden I realize I'm bleeding. That's kind of that scanning picking behavior. Mm -hmm. Focused on the other hand would be more, um, I'm coming home from work, I pause in the hallway, I catch a glimpse at that something on my face that um, compels me to fix it for cut to the next couple of hours, and then I come out of the zone, and that's more of a focus picking. So really in breaking my picking down into these categories, it's been easier for me to create strategies uh, to manage my picking. If I may ask, like what kind of, when you're doing focus picking, like what kinds of things would set that off? Would that be like acne or something else? Uh, oftentimes it has been acne. Um, oftentimes scanning picking leads to focus picking. If my hand is wandering on my chest and finds the littlest bump sticking out, okay. um, my body might clock that it's there and I kind of check it and I'll, I'll feel it again, feel it again, irritate it, and then kind of create something out of nothing. And then it becomes an area that I'm focused on and it's a perceived imperfection that um, really uh, takes me out of the zone. In general, um, yeah, some kind of triggering foreign, uh, unfamiliar something on the skin. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Thank you. Our listeners really appreciate when our guests share their stories. Um, As you all know, that helps us feel so much less alone and more connected, more human, makes our behaviors less strange. Lauren, would you mind telling us about your journey? And then Ellen, maybe you could share yours after that. Sure. Oh my gosh, I would love to. Yes. So my journey with skin picking disorder has been quite a journey. I've been a compulsive skin picker for well over 28 years. I've been picking my skin daily, you know, and my skin is scarred head to toe, kind of peppered like polka dots, but um, it's something that I've learned to love and embrace and have created kind of a purpose out of a disorder that I now say picked me. Growing up, picking really affected um, all aspects of my life. Anything really from sleepovers, you know, I had to deal with why did I have black bed sheets, you know, but it was really because I didn't know when I'd be bleeding and it was our way of handling it at the time. Um, to being maybe in school with school nurses, pulling me aside, seeing lesions on my arms and reprimanding me and my parents for not taking care of me. But, you know, it was really no one knew how to deal with what was undiagnosable at this point, because mind you, this is all happening before skin picking disorder was even diagnosable, which wasn't until 2013. 
So life, you know, continued. Um, my skin picking showed up in, you know, every way possible, sometimes consuming hours of my day. It was hard to hold a job. You know, it really, really just kind of affected anything that I wanted to take on. It felt very controlling. How old were you when it started? Do you remember? I do. I was five years old when I remember picking. And I there's actually, we have an old picture of me and some girls lined up in bathing suits at a lake house, you know, one year, one summer. And um, I am just polka-dotted in these mosquito bites that have just been picked into wounds. And, you know, it really is a way that I was um, regulating stimuli at the time is the best way I could put it. And a way that became familiar to me to regulate how I was feeling was to pick at these wounds. And it just really stuck and ingrained in me as a repetitive behavior throughout the years. Well, another thing that was really hard was um, the way my attitude was changing, the way I started to isolate myself and not go outside or not show up to things. Um, It really, really got to a boiling point. I didn't know which lies I had told people. Like, you know, I had chiggers or I had... um, you know, rashes or some kind of dermatology disorder that I made up or something. And it um, really felt like an inauthentic life that I was living. And of course, then the isolation and the shame and um, really keeping myself inside is the best way I can put it. It really felt like this disorder was authoring uh, my story for me. You know, I did end up having a pretty big surgery from this disorder. In 2014, I ended up in the hospital uh, with an abscess that I had picked. And it was about the eighth time I think I'd been in the hospital for picking a wound into an abscess. But this time I contracted uh, the life-taking bacteria MRSA and had to have um, immediate surgery and, um, you know, lost a good chunk of my inner thigh to it, wore a wound back, uh, like a purse 24-7. It was a pretty traumatic experience. And this is... um, Around the time I learned what dermatillomania was, you know, I learned, uh, I had a word, I had a name for it, you know, so it was also a very identifiable and validating experience as well. I remember one of the first times with that like wound back in my leg that I shared with somebody who asked, oh, what, what happened? And it was really in that moment when I told them, oh, I have dermatillomania, it's this compulsive skin picking that that I've been dealing with and just really was honest and owned my truth. That's, I think, where it really shifted. It became my moment of taking a little bit of that control back. The seeds were planted to form a community that turned into um, the Picking Me Foundation. For us also, we were on anxiety journeys together for many, many years before we formed the Anxiety Sisters. And, you know, when we started to learn about the terminology, you know, and the diagnoses we didn't know existed, it was very empowering. And when suddenly when we started telling our stories publicly, and, you know, I mean, I remember the first time I told anyone that I was on Prozac and I had been so terrified to let anyone know that I was taking medication for my anxiety. And I just came right out and said it. And Mm -hmm. People were so supportive and everybody else was saying, oh, really? Me too. <laughs> and, and it just was this feeling of, oh my God, the answer to this is community. We have to, we have to be together with this stuff and talk about it. Totally. Yeah. I totally feel that. Ellen, would you mind sharing with us about um, your, your trichotillomania story? Sure. Some of us know when we had our first poll. Some of us don't. And I do. I was 11 years old. And I was in gym class. We were outside 
<laughs> and we're getting, we're waiting to have our teams picked for whatever activity we were going to do. And I was neither sporty nor popular. So of course I was probably had some anxiety about it. And I was just uh, touching my hair as girls tend to do. And then all of a sudden I pulled one out and I have no idea why I did. But when I pulled that first hair out, I got a zing and it felt so good that I continued. And that was my first pull. And I had no idea that I was doing any damage. If you see a picture of me, you'll see that I have long, thick, dark brown hair. And as time went, during the time when I had my first pull, I started pulling behind my left and right ear. And I had no idea that I was doing any damage until I walked into the hairstylist. And then all of a sudden, Fatima noticed two bald spots behind my both my ears and calls my mother over and says, Sandy, there's something wrong with Ellen. And I'm sitting there literally looking up at them and they're looking down at me saying, Ellen, what'd you do? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? What did you do? And all I heard was I'm wrong. And immediately I thought, Oh my God, I got to come up with something here. So I lied. And I said that my best friend put gum in my hair and I had to pull it out. And both of them were satisfied with that answer. And I was terrified, like, oh my God, well, this is it. I clearly I'm, I'm wrong. And so I can't do this anymore. So I need to stop. And you know, you know how that goes. I couldn't stop. And that's part of having trichotillomania. You want to stop, but you can't stop. Mm-hmm. And it also feels good. And, and to get a little bit um, real with your audience, when I pulled the hair, I was always searching for the perfect one, the one that was a little bit more curly, the one that was a little bit more thick. I liked the sound of it when it kind of came out of my scalp. And I like to bite the end of the, the root and then pull the hair through my teeth. And then I would bite it into little pieces. And then I would take the hair from the little pieces and I would just discard it. So if I was in school, I would just discard it on the floor. If I was at home in, in my bed, it would go behind my bedpost. And I wanted to stop, but I couldn't stop. And I thought I was a a weirdo. Why am I doing this? Why can't I stop? And this was 1976. So there was no internet. There was no way I was asking my mom because she said I was wrong for what's what's wrong with you. And I'm not gonna ask the librarian. So I just went about thinking I must just be a weirdo. Fast forward, now it's the eighties, it's still no internet. And I'm at University of Maryland, go Terps. And go Terps. <laughs> and I walk into abnormal psych class, and lo and behold, on the wall was the word or on the board, Catillomania. And I learned at that point that there was a name for it. And I was delighted. I'm like, oh my God, there's a name. I'm not the only one in the world. Because that's how we feel. We feel like we're the only ones who do this. And again, one in 20. Right. So I think, you know, I felt great. Maybe this is treatable. So I did a couple things. One, I told a girlfriend and she at first was really supportive, but then we had a falling out. And then I'm sitting in a hostess chair working and I'm bored, right? Because I had mentioned that before, a lot of times the triggers are boredom. There comes the hair, pull it out, put it in the mouth, bring it between the teeth. And my girlfriend saw me and she looks at me, she goes, you are disgusting. And I still remember what I was wearing. She doesn't remember. I'm sure she doesn't remember any of this, but we remember those things. I decided, well, that didn't work out. So I'm never going to tell anybody ever again. So then I graduate from college, 
still hiding and living in fear that someone's going to catch me because your hands have a mind of their own and they automatically go to your eyebrows, or your eyelashes or your scalp. And, and you start to scan for the hair and you find one you like and you pull it and you don't even realize you're doing it until it's too late and on the ground are 14 pieces or 400 pieces of hair. I tried medication. I tried Prozac, but it did nothing for the hair pulling. Mm. I tried acupuncture. I tried hypnosis. I tried an aminoistine called NAC. I tried therapy. I tried group therapy. And that was actually one of the best things I did. I was at the point where I was 95% pull free for about two months. Then the group ended and then my pulling came back. Mm. So I decided this is probably just something I have to live with. And I would figure out ways of pulling because I enjoyed it, but doing it in a way that no one could tell. You both mentioned that, you know, you felt like at certain points you were, you were lying about things. You were really dishonest. There's a lot of shame that go, that go with these disorders. And when you're a hair puller, um, you feel as if it's your fault because it's your hand. And we feel like it's our fault that we're pulling at our hair. I'll speak to that. And then we're embarrassed. And so when someone asks us, how did you, why are you thin over there? Or what's going on with that little spot over there? Or if your mother or father knows and they say, did you pull today? We don't want to tell the truth, which then can lead to down a rabbit hole that we don't feel good enough. And maybe we should lie about other things. I absolutely agree with Ellen on the shame factor. The shame is so real in the disorder, in the behavior, in the aftermath of the behavior. You know, just to add on to shame, I'd highlight isolation. Um, There's such a sense of loneliness, of being the only one, and being bad, being, um, being in the wrong. Those are definitely emotions that popped up for me for why... I had these kind of deceptive cover stories for my behaviors. What you're saying is very true for anxiety sisters in general. You know, we we talk all the time about how because anxiety is located in the brain, we can't see it. So when we're experiencing anxiety, often the response that we get from other people who don't understand is they'll, they'll think we're flaky or they'll think that we're unreliable or they'll say things to us like, oh, just get over it or calm down or you worry too much. And, you know, we, Maggie and I always say that we are no more capable of carrying on with normal function when we're in the throes of anxiety than someone is with a broken leg to climb a flight of stairs. I mean, it, these are just because you can't see it because it's in the brain doesn't mean that it isn't a legitimate disorder that can't just be stopped by someone suggesting you do so. Bingo. That's exactly right. Ellen, you mentioned before that some of the common treatments that sometimes help OCD and or anxiety don't always work like the medications. So what's the treatment? What do you do? That's a great question. The gold standard treatment is cognitive behavioral therapy and habit reversal. Okay. So just to expand on that a little bit is you, you would see a therapist and not many therapists are trained in how to treat BFRBs. But if you go to BFRB.org, there is a link to therapists that have been trained in how to treat these disorders. And what you'll do during treatment is you're going to create your own plan specific to how you engage with your behavior. It's things like place, the physical place that you pull or pick, because everybody tends to do them in specific places. 
Um, you're going to talk about how, how to do some prevention so that if you know that when I'm reading a book or when I'm studying is a place that's a trigger for me, that you go prepared with things in your hands or whatever it's going to do it to help you prevent. And you're going to go through different strategies for habit reversal training. So instead of pulling your hair, let's figure out some strategies that are going to replace that that are more positive. And the first thing in order for treatment to work is you have to want to make a change. These behaviors are self-soothing. It's a love-hate relationship. So first you have to want to make a change. And the second thing is you have to be aware. You have to know when you're doing it. Once you have those two things, then working with the therapist can be very useful to help you create these strategies. I had found Habit Aware makes a bracelet called Keen, and it's developed by Anila, who grew up with this issue. She pulled her eyelashes and eyebrows. And the quick story behind that is she never told her husband she had been pulling her eyelashes for and eyebrows for over 20 years. She was hiding in the bathroom, putting on, her, trying to get her eye makeup on, and he walked in the door. And he looked at her and said, where are your eyebrows? And she confessed her hair pulling secret. His pet project to help his wife turned into a company, which is Habit Aware. And the bracelet, you train it for your specific behavior. So if you are pulling your eyelashes, eyebrows, scalp hair, or picking, what will happen is, is when you go to engage in that behavior, it will gently vibrate to bring you awareness. So then you have a choice. You're aware and now you can either continue or you can do something else. Mm. For me, it's been a tremendous, unbelievable help in my journey. I am now two plus years. I'm not pull free, but I'm a rock solid 95% pull free, which is good enough for me. That's great. Thank you. Lauren, can you talk a little bit about, you know, treatment for dermatillomania? Sure. So my treatment personally with uh, my dermatillomania, um, I've seen the most improvement started when I, when I started logging really, which was a process that I learned to love. You know, it was something that was not fun at first. And by logging, I mean tracking when and where and why I was picking. And I did that in cognitive behavioral therapy um, with a therapist and eventually developed my own um, skin picking logs, kind of modeled after the TLC Foundation's comb bead model. And with these skin picking logs, I was able to really look at tracking things we've mentioned already, like was the picking uh, scanning or focused? Where was it happening in the environment? But also things like what other need could have been met? Was I really tired at this moment or was I really hungry? Or what was my thought behind the picking? Was it about perfection or about accomplishment or wanting something else? And, and I kind of turned these logs into data. And it was kind of fun to look at this as, as like research that I was collecting. It let me be proactive in my um, management of my dermatillomania, which also let me feel like I was um, participating in my life again. It didn't feel like I was under such control. Of the disorder. So definitely these skin picking logs were something that I recommend checking out in terms of treatment. But something else that's also been quite helpful, we've talked a little bit about habit reversal training, and I do love the use uh, of fidget tools. But what I think is really important to mention about fidgets is they've seemed to mainly work when they're given one job, one purpose. And what I mean by that is by having something such as a tangle, which is like a, a soothing, knotted 
toy that you can play with that moves fluidly in your hand. I'll give that one place to live on my keyboard at work so that if I leave, stand up, use the bathroom, I place it on my keyboard. When I come back, the first thing that my hands do, they have to pick that tangle up and start moving it. And all that helped me do at my desk at work was get my finger energy moving off my body in any chance that it could be going towards my body or starting to scan my skin. So I really started Mm -hmm. to get used to having something there to get my energy, my finger energy off my body, which was really helpful as picking at my desk at my keyboard was a trigger environment for me. Wow. And you also have those kits that you sell or give out? Absolutely. So we have this project called the Fiddle Pack Project. And what it is are fiddle packs full of curated fidgets from the skin picking community. Um, There's between 20, 25 items in there that range from things like fake grapes, tangles, stressed balls, pimple patches, finger covers, erasers. But the main thing behind them is they each come with a way to use in each individual fidget. Again, going with that one fidget, one job, one purpose. Things like taking the pipe cleaners in there and tying them on your steering wheel so that you have something to manipulate. And every time we sell one of these fiddle packs, we actually donate one to a sufferer in need, a dermatologist, or a pediatrician just to continue spreading awareness on skin picking disorder. Check out the Picking Me Foundation's website. They they do incredible projects and they get people in the community talking about the disorder, which is so important. That's Mags and I believe wholeheartedly that talking about it, being a community, surrounding each other with support helps to normalize all of these disorders and make us feel more human and, and not let anyone feel wrong, like Ellen said that she grew up feeling or ashamed. I mean, you know, these are, these are, these are legitimate disorders and shame should not be a factor. I have another question that came from one of the, our anxiety sisters, again, who has a daughter who has trouble with this. And um, they've experienced a lot of loss in their family in the last year. And she was wondering whether, like in times of extreme loss or stress, can that make the disorder worse? The short answer is absolutely. If somebody is having a traumatic event, a loss in the family, or they're under a lot of anxiety, uh, it can make the trichotillomania worse because um, it's a self-soothing behavior. So if you're anxious or something's going on, you could be gravitating towards your hair in order to co- to reset your central nervous system. Mm, okay. So, but I also do, I, I don't want people to think, well, if I get rid of all the anxiety, then my hair pulling is going to go away because that's not right. necessarily the case. But that's the, a great point. We have noticed too, and you've probably seen this in the anxiety side and the OCD side when when kids go off to college that if they are predisposed or they have an anxiety disorder, it can get exacerbated. And it's the same thing with trichotillomania and with skin picking. Lauren, what can you do if someone you care about, if you think that they're suffering from BFRBs, like how, how can you help? What, what can you do as a friend or as, a, as a, you know, someone that cares for someone who seems to be suffering from this disorder? I'd, I'd reach out to them. I'd, I'd see if they have someone that they're speaking with and can share about their BFRB with, if that's not me, if I'm not already that person. Um, because I found that once I joined a support group and was able to share my story and hear other like-minded stories, uh, I really was able to feel not only connection, but like I mattered. 
And I, I'd want to offer that kind of feeling to um, somebody that was struggling first. Uh, now, I know you actually run a support group in Chicago, right? Yes, I do. I do. It's one of my favorite things to do. I absolutely love support group. You know, like I said, I'm so about uh, us sharing our experiences, whatever, however the BFRB showed up from um, the last time we met till meeting again. One of the best things would have to be our... Uh, our goal setting. So like we'll make mini goals, goals as small as not goals to stop picking. No, but goals like I'm going to get home tonight and I'm going to hang a scarf on my mirror. And that's the goal. And if you accomplish that, awesome. What's the reward? We love setting these mini goals and doing mini wins. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, if somebody doesn't live in Chicago and is looking for a support group for BFRBs, is there a place where they can find that? Yeah, um, checking uh, bfrb.org for an updated list of support groups is um, one resource for sure. For other communities, though, in the skin picking sector, I'd also recommend trying to participate in our Drawing with Derma Challenge or viewing the art gallery, which really shows depictions of what the disorder can feel like. Oftentimes, it's hard to talk about it, so we encourage people to draw about it. So I'd recommend checking out uh, the visual depictions of the disorder as well. Wow. And that's on your website, right? Yeah, you got it. <laughs> and, um, and also, I have a, I run a support group in Washington, D.C. Ooh, terrific. So if anybody is looking for a support group for 18 years or older, you can reach out to me. Oh, that's great. And then also, if you go to BFRB.org, then they probably would have other support groups that are, if you're in a different location in the country. That's correct. Are there also online support groups? There are support groups through Facebook. If you go to Facebook and you look up trichotillomania or BFRBs, there'll be lots of support groups. There's an outstanding Facebook group for parents because parents need to be supported. So it's a place you can go to say, oh my God, what do I do? So I'll get that for you and you can post it in the show notes. Oh, that would be super. Really, oh, That's great, Ellen. Thank you. I have a question. Ellen talked about starting when she was 11. Lauren said when she was five. So when a very young child is starting with the BFRBs, what can you do as a parent, you know, particularly with younger kids, to help your child not feel ashamed and not feel wrong, but simply help that child find a way to manage the disorder? Sure. Yeah. Just one, one thing I'd love to share that I've really found works uh, with younger kids is having um, an agreement where there's, it's not about saying stop picking or um, this verbal command, but more of if my hands were headed on my shoulders, um, maybe I felt my mom gently lower it down or hand me a stress ball or a tangle instead. Maybe we had a one agreed upon fidget that if she saw my hands going up or touching my chest, then she'd hand me the fidget, but like nothing's really said. It's kind of about participating in supporting how to help the behavior as opposed to um, trying to get it to stop in the moment. Interesting. I mean, I um, I was a, a really fierce nail and cuticle biter as a kid. And my father always used to mm. smack my hands every time they were in my mouth. And I usually didn't even know they were in my mouth. It became such an unconscious activity that they just, my hands were just always in my mouth. And my dad didn't know any better. So he would do two things. One is he would smack my hands like when they were in my mouth. So it would hurt and it would also startle me. 
And so I kind of got like, it made me very nervous around him because I was always afraid that he, that, my, that I was going to, you know, that he was going to startle me. And the other thing is that he used to stick his hands in his mouth and make all these really awful faces. And I think he was trying to say, this is what you look like when you do this. And he wasn't trying to be mean, but I really remember feeling such deep shame and such deep sadness that I, that I was such a screw up, you know, that, 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 you know, that this offended my dad so much that I was doing it. So I, I think back that he had just handed me a fidget that, that would have gone such a long way, I think for me. Like Lauren said, you do want to help distract and do things without pointing it out. No one wants them to be smacked. And no one wants to be told, take your hands out of your mouth or stop pulling your hair or stop biting your nails or stop picking your skin. It's really working on the process. So the parents understanding, well, gee, this typically happens when my child is in front of the TV. So I'm going to have a basket of all these fidget toys that they can play with in front of the TV and working with your child to find some things that are going to be helpful with their hands other than you telling them to stop. Because it's just going to make it worse if you tell them to stop. Yeah, hmm. that's great. That's really helpful. Is it fair to say that there's no cure? Just like panic attacks, there's no cure. But you can control them or you can work to control them. So you have to want to make a change. And once you want to make that change, then there's things you can do, but you have to have awareness. And these disorders are so hard to have the awareness because they're so automatic. Just like you had mentioned with putting your nails in your mouth, you don't even realize you're doing it. It's just so automatic. Mm -hmm. That's why the Keen bracelet, I think, is so wonderful because it vibrates. It's just a gentle hug on your wrist telling you, hey, your hands are where you don't want them to be. Do something else. It just makes you aware of where your hands are. Thank you both so much for taking time out of your super busy schedules to chat with us and our listeners. We're all just very grateful for the work you do to support and educate those with mental health disorders and BFRBs and their loved ones. And for me and Mags, it's always wonderful to connect with other women who are really interested in ending the stigma around mental health issues and who are really trying to give back and make the world a better place because we still believe in that. So thank you both. We, we feel really blessed to have you in our lives. So we have some announcements. Our e-course, Anxiety Rescue, is in full swing. Two classes are currently running, right, Mags? Right. And we just had such an amazing phone call with one of the classes, our live call. Our live call, that was great. We have really, we have lots of wonderful women enrolled in our courses, all of whom are learning new techniques to manage their anxiety and take their lives back. In a nutshell, it's a five-week online program, but you do the, the program completely at your own pace. There's tons of exercises, activities, there's visualization and meditation downloads. We have an anxiety journal. We have a live call that Maggie was just talking about. People are really responding well to the course. They really, they really seem to like it. Once you sign up for the course, you can get started immediately. We will send you our ebook and you get access to the private confidential forums with fellow anxiety sisters who are taking the courses. And you'll have daily access to us because basically Mags and I just hang out on the forums waiting for you to ask a question. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, just go to anxietysisters.com and click on take our course to learn more about it. Or you can just email us and ask us about it. You can find us on Facebook, where we just passed 100,000 followers. Yay. Instagram, on Twitter, where we don't have 100,000 followers. And on our website at www.anxietysisters.com. Or email us at abs and mags 
at anxietysisters.com. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or an idea for a podcast, email us. The general theme of this announcement has been email us. And please, 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 please leave us a review wherever you are getting this podcast from. If that's iTunes, if that's SoundCloud, because if we get reviews, then more people know about the Anxiety Sisters. Except, Max, I don't think there's iTunes anymore. Oh. It's, I don't know, it's Apple now or something. Oh, okay. Okay. But we're also on Spotify and SoundCloud. Wherever you're getting your podcasts, let people know that this is helpful so we can get some more people on board. And remember, anxiety, anxiety sisters, sisters, don't go, go it right. alone. Let's try again. Okay. Okay. And Abby reminded me that I have to say, and remember, anxiety and sisters, don't, don't go it alone. All right. Can we try again? We yes. But we never okay. Right. Here we go. Okay. So, so Abs has reminded me that I have to remind you that anxiety sisters, Don't Don't go it alone. (laughs) All right. Let's just say, thank you so much for joining us. And remember, anxiety... (sighs) Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, anxiety sisters, they don't go it alone. They don't go it alone. (laughs) I'm done. I'm so done. Remember, anxiety sisters, don't go it alone. They're not going to go it alone. We'll see you next time. Don't go it alone. Go it with us. You think they're going to want to hang out with us after that? You've been listening to The Spin Cycle, an Anxiety Sisters production. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.